0: You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and open stacks archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. On April 30, 1970, U.S. President Richard Nixon announced the expansion of the Vietnam War into the neighboring country of Cambodia. This resulted in a wave of student strikes across the country throughout the month of May 1970. On May 4, the U.S. National Guard opened fire on student protesters at Kent State University in Ohio. Eleven days later, Mississippi State Police opened fire on student protesters at Jackson State University, a historically black college. Together, six students were killed in the shootings. In this episode, Interference Archive volunteer Jen Hoyer interviews activist Dennis O'Neill. Dennis grew up in New York City and was a student at New York University in May 1970. He tells us about the events leading up to the student strike as well as the aftermath of the shootings at Kent and Jackson State.
1: So to start off with, we're looking back 50 years to a moment when student organizing reached a climax in the United States around the events at Kent State and Jackson State. So you've written about how May 1970 didn't erupt from a vacuum, but what brought us there? May
2: 1970 was sort of the high point and in some ways, the swan song of an incredibly powerful student movement. And the first big shift came with the civil rights movement. And people often talk about, when did the 1960s start? It started on February 2nd, 1960, because February 1st was the day that four college students in Greensboro, North Carolina Sat down and occupied a lunch counter demanding to be served to try and break the hold that segregation had throughout the entire South and parts of the North. They came back the next day. They had probably 17 students with them. And the day after that, there were 50 some, including for the first time some white kids from North Carolina Women's College. And then we were off to the races. People were taking over lunch counters all over the South, and it was the beginning of what we think of as the modern civil rights movement. Yes, there were precursors and all of that, but students did it, students kicked it off, and it grew, and this had a galvanizing and inspiring effect on students all over the country. Just the month before the whole stuff blew up at Kent, there was a uh, very important protest at the University of Kansas at Lawrence. There was a student strike. Black students had taken over and occupied the administration building. That was a matter of course. There were similar things at Ohio State, uh, University of Maryland at College Park. I mean, I could name a half a dozen around the country that had these kinds of protests, these kinds of activities.
1: So then on May 1st of 1970, you were at a rally in New Haven. Why yes. was that rally significant and what were the demands that came out of it?
2: Well, the first thing was it was a rally in support of the Black Panther Party. Um, sometime in April, uh, about 5,000 of us, almost all students had marched across um, the Queensboro Bridge to the Queens House of Detention because uh, some Panther political prisoners, the Panther 21 were being held prisoner there. And that gave real impetus. People said, wow, that was great. Let's go to New Haven where a protest had been called because Bobby seal was on trial for his life on a frame up of, uh, being complicit in the assassination of another member of the Panther party. So we took, you know, thousands of people up from New York, all over the Eastern seaboard and beyond. And while we were on the way there, uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon, the president of the United States, announced that, in the interests of peace, he was sending umpty-ump thousand U.S. troops across the border of Vietnam into Cambodia. We had heard this on our way up, and people were, "We've got to do something." So there was a huge meeting where, after you know, a day or so of the demonstration and the demand, people said, we got to go back and organize our campuses for a student strike. And there was some discussion and some debate. And the uh, the meeting decided on three demands, which became the demands of the student strike nationwide, pretty much, you know. And they were, one. Um, uh, free Bobby Seale and all political prisoners to U.S. out of Southeast Asia, three, and campus complicity with the Moore machine. So these touched on the three, two main issues of the student movement, which had continued up from the 60s to that time, and it raised the element of there are things that you can do on your campus. Your campus is complicit. It gives grades to the uh, uh, selective service, so they can draft people whose grades aren't high enough. Um, they do research for uh, the military. Um, professors are leading uh, you know, uh, foundations and think tanks to try to help do this this shit has got to stop. So those demands were it. And we we took it up and we all rolled out of New Haven to our respective campuses to try and agitate our fellow students to start a strike.
1: One thing that you wrote about the Vietnam War is that it created a really deep fissure in the American body politic, deeper than anything since the Civil War. And at the time, the divide wasn't sectional. It ran through every part of the country. It divided communities. It split classes, families. Um, And if there was any kind of divide in it, it was maybe generational. Um, And I'm curious to know whether you experienced that kind of generational divide, um, if you have any memories that really illustrate that. No,
2: friends of mine did, but not my not with my family. Uh, okay. I, I had friends who were disowned completely by their parents who could not, wow. could not go home. And who, you know, when we were younger, when it was the, the middle of the 60s, the house that my brothers and my mother and I lived in became kind of a sanctuary. Kids would come over there to hang out and to, sometimes to sleep for a week or two if they'd been thrown out or something like that. It was it was very deep, and it was generational. Uh, there's a line in a Phil Oaks song that I, I cite which goes, it's always the old to lead us to the wars. It's always the young to die. And uh, that was how we experienced it. That was how we felt. In the period that we're talking about, polls and everything else showed that the majority of Americans thought that the National Guard did the right thing at Kent State. On I, I think it was the evening of the second. Um, an unfortunate case of spontaneous combustion happened to the building of the Reserve Officer Training Corps, the ROTC program which trained military officers as part of, uh, you know, they gave kids money for a college education and uh, a, uh, you know, commissioned them as officers um, when they went into the service. So, as I say, that building burned down and then, uh, you know, the fire department came and somehow all the hoses seemed to be cut. So it burned to the ground. And or were hundreds, you know, there were hundreds of people more churning around, um, right around the fire on the campus and stuff. It was the start of the protest. That's why Governor Rhodes of Ohio sent the National Guard in. And they came in too late to stop a lot of this. But they came in, set up, bivouacked. And the next day, um, at uh, shortly after noon, uh, one squad of the troops... Turned fired into protesters, and killed four wounded, i think thirteen. The killings at Kent kicked everything into overdrive. We knew technically that you know this was this was the capitalist state they could shoot us, yes, and so on, but we didn 't kind of think they would by and large, even though they had done so to to black students on a couple of occasions you know the i mean In Jackson State, uh, I mean, it was utterly horrific. Uh, Mostly it was uh, uh, male students. So they were out in front of a a dormitory, a women's dormitory, um, and the women were cheering them on and stuff from the windows. And uh, again, local police and state uh, troopers opened fire. It was an incredible barrage. It was hundreds of bullets were fired. And to their credit, the administration at Jackson State has left the facade of that woman's dormitory exactly as it was. Um, But Jackson became a battle cry for the movement and has been ever since. I I was at Kent State where there has been an observance of Uh, The shootings there every year since, uh, you know, 1971, every single year organized by people on the campus, for people on the campus, and increasingly for other people. And the slogan has always been, long live the spirit of Kenton Jackson State. It was understood at the time, and this is one of the things about the Great American Memory Hole, that Jackson was a part of what had happened. And that at least those of us who were progressive, who cared about racism and stuff, always made that point that that is part of the memory that we have to reclaim and hold up.
1: So then May 4th was the shooting at Kent State. And over the month of May, 1970, um, you like many, college students were involved in a lot of actions. Could you speak to what you were working on in New York City and the groups that you were involved with?
2: Um, At NYU downtown, where the action shifted because it was a larger campus, that's where NYU is now, Uh, students took over a computer that was partly funded with Navy money, the Courant Institute computer. And we held it for ransom for... Um, $100,000 to bail out one of the Panther 21. We also took over the NYU print shop and turned it over to some movement printers uh, who set up the Kimball Collective and used NYU ink uh, on NYU presses, on NYU paper to make two and a half weeks, I think, worth of Posters, flyers, newsletters, everything we could. Um, It was a movement center. So what I was doing, um, we started working out a set of demands at NYU's Uptown Campus, uh, which is where um, Bronx Community College now is. Um, We had been doing some work with local high school students at different high schools. So we went out there to the high schools with leaflets to try to help them see if they could build walkouts, do that. The students at at Taft, I was, you know, uh, Taft High School in the Bronx. I was was the outside agitator, um, you know, and I was denounced by the administration who put out leaflets against me and stuff. But I didn't do shit. I just went down and talked to them and suggested this and that. And I took them down to the print shop, the Kimball Hall Collective, and they learned how to lay out their own newspaper down there and print it. And then they took it back and distributed it at the campus.
1: It's really amazing that you invested that kind of energy. You saw the necessity to involve high school students. What was the role of high school students in this moment? And why did you um, pull them in to the organizing work?
2: Oh, they were already pro- politically active in a lot of places and uh, wanted, wanted to have a part of it. And they were, they were doing it anyway, but also one of our most important demands at, at NYU and at a lot of the campuses was for open admissions. This was you know, a question of, if you will, class struggle. You know, We did not like being in a privileged institution you know, located adjacent to poor communities where kids, uh, mothers and fathers came to mop the floors and serve the meals and where they had no fucking chance at college at all. So we, we were really very serious about transforming the academy. And you can't do that unless you transform the high schools too.
1: Right. Yeah. And so what do you feel is different about student organizing now compared to 1970.
2: Oh, it's a world different. I mean, you got to understand the world was our Erster, or if you're not from Brooklyn, Oyster. You know, we we had things pretty good. You know, there was not the pressure, the insane pressure that now exists from elementary school on, you know, on um, particularly students of the middle class and the professional managerial class but even upper level working class students you know back a lot of a lot of the working class people who were in college when i was there we were the first people in our family to to go to college you know and it was a little bit of a disappointment to our parents when we uh, you know didn't didn't follow the course they had hoped but you know uh, that was what happened and So it was easy to be a campus radical. It really was. It was not, um, my hat is off to people who are campus activists today. They have it much harder and especially, you know, a lot of motherfuckers out there who are sunk, who are going to be underwater for the next 30 or 40 years with these debts. They're never gonna be able to buy a house or an apartment Hell, they'll be lucky if they can buy a car with less than 120,000 miles on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Are there any lessons that you think we can learn from any of the organizing tactics used or um, strategies for for mobilizing students from all over the country?
2: Yeah, Um, well, I mean, one of the things during the intervening period, you know, before the big ramp up and stuff, you look where stuff is affecting students on campus, right? And try to link it with the broader picture. Students may be fighting for the right to vote in a lot of places. You know, we've seen what happened in Wisconsin, where uh, the biggest victims of the uh, clampdown on uh, vote, uh, vote by mail were the black community and college campuses certainly the the student debt thing is a good battlefield but i don 't know you know you got to actually go out there i mean that's this is the other thing that we learned to do is um, you go out amongst the people the the folks who you 're organizing, the students, whoever it is on your campus, the broader student movement, you try to find out. What their concerns are by talking to them and by seeing what they're willing to move on. you know, Because they'll shake their hand, heads, yes, but it don't mean they're going to move. So you try to suss that out, look a little deeper. And out of that, you start to hammer out a program. So I'm saying student debt, but people got to, you got to figure that out for yourself. Who are the people you're working with? What do they care about? What are they thinking about?
0: This episode is part of a forthcoming exhibit at Interference Archive about the 50-year anniversary of the student strikes of May 1970. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this exhibit has been moved online. For updates about the exhibit, subscribe to our mailing list at interferencearchive.org. And of course, a very special thanks to Dennis O'Neill for taking the time to speak with Jen digitally.
1: Dennis? You on?
2: I thought I put my little uh, face up there. But I guess not. I don't know how to do this crap. Wait a second. Oh. Okay, no, no.
1: There
2: you go. Okay. Uh, not my strong suit, this stuff. So You're um, doing great. My last computer I was much more comfortable with. It was old. I had to use little tweezers to put bits of coal in the boiler. It's now well beyond me.
0: You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The Archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered, and we rely on donations to keep us up and running. To support what we do, go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. Thanks for listening.